Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Brendan here, and do we have a good show for you today. The guest is Lawrence Fox, fresh from his controversial appearance on Question Time, and he doesn't hold back. But before we get started, I want to tell you about the best way to support Spiked and all the work we do. We have no paywall or subscriber model. All of our articles and essays and podcasts are free because we want everyone to be able to read us and we want our ideas to spread as far and as wide as possible. And to keep that up and in order for us to grow, we rely on donations from our supporters, particularly those who give money every month. So if you enjoy the work we do, please do consider becoming a regular donor. One-off donations are brilliant and always greatly appreciated, but it is by building up our base of regular supporters that we can really plan for the future and for bigger and better things. Just £5 a month can have a huge impact. So to those who already give in whatever frequency, thank you. And to those who would like to, just go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button to sign up. That's www.spiked-online.com and the big red donate button. Now on with the show. You can take your white male privilege and shove it, actually. And you can shove it for all of the other white people in this world that are working hard and trying to get on with it. It's got nothing to do with our race, our colour, whatever it is. Yeah. Is shove it. Yeah. And I I didn't, I've never thought about it. You know, these sort of posh Wimbledon Easters with sort of slightly exotic names going, I'm oppressed too. I I didn't think it was that insidious, but now I do. I'm now actually angry. I haven't been angry for a while. I'm now like, fuck you guys. Yeah. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Lawrence Fox. Lawrence is an actor and a singer-songwriter. He starred in the detective series Lewis on ITV from 2006 to 2015. His films include Gosford Park, Becoming Jane and Elizabeth the Golden Age. He has released two albums, A Grief Observed last year and Holding Patterns in 2016. And he released an EP in 2013 called Sorry for My Words. That title, Sorry for My Words, sums up the rebellious nature of some of Lawrence's music. He has taken a pretty firm stance against PC censorship and the divisiveness of identity politics. His anti-woke tune, The Distance, contains the line, they seek to murder your opinion. It addresses the censoriousness and backwardness of the woke age and laments the decline of the age of reason. It's fair to say he holds opinions that people in the cultural world don't often hold, or at least don't often express. Lawrence does express those opinions publicly, which makes him a breath of fresh air. Lawrence, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I want to kick off by asking you about your world, your industry, the place where you work, the cultural industry, and particularly to begin with the the world of film, which to most people is perhaps the most woke of industries, the most irritating of industries, the one who, the, the people who are most likely to lecture us, even though they don't really have many legs to stand on when it comes to lecturing us. And we're talking shortly after Ricky Gervais gave these people a bit of a tongue lashing and told them all off at the Golden Globes for being hypocrites and pretending to be woke, but behaving in a very unprincipled way. So is that accurate? Is it, is it like that? Do, do, when you mix in this world, is it correct that they hold 
opinions that uh, are painfully politically correct and probably wouldn't be very popular with normal people. It's really interesting. I think it's changed a bit. In the olden days, there wasn't so much media, was there? You know, mm. there wasn't social media and there wasn't, you know, the new media. So you, you only really had to be on best behavior for the times when you were being interviewed or at award ceremonies or things like that. But now, because I think actors and actresses and, and well, everyone involved in the industry wants to come across as like, hire me, mm. please hire me. Yeah. You, there needs people need to adopt this kind of deep virtuosity in in all aspects of their lives for fear of saying the wrong thing and getting blacklisted mm. by the wrong channel or whatever. But it is the irony is so beautifully woke, isn't it? That it's show business that has decided to you know take the moral high ground out of all of the businesses in the world <laughs> and all of the industries in the world. The the people that bought you the casting couch mm-hmm. talk to you about this stuff. Mm. And um, what's so interesting is is who's going to go down there's a lot of people going to go down people i know are going to go down Mm. it should should this continue you know the um the policing of 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 all of it It, it's very weird i I think that your use of the word uh blacklisting is actually really important because uh, one of the things that struck me as deeply ironic and quite scary about this culture that we live in and it's a, and it's a very pronounced culture in in, in the cultural industry uh, the kind of very unforgiving censorious uh, sometimes quite prudish um woke culture which it, it w- will cast you out of polite society for any minor moral transgression or any sexual misbehavior from 35 years ago it has a lot in common with blacklisting as we would traditionally understand that word, which is in the 50s in particular, when you couldn't work in Hollywood if you had particular political views. Do you think things have got that serious where you you have a situation where actors and others in the film industry are always on their best behavior because they are worried that it's possible they could just be shunted from that sphere? It's endemic. It's not, I'm not even worried about it. It's endemic in our industry. You know, certainly, I mean, I, I never worked for the BBC. They would never hire me, but I think there, I think there is a slight change now Mm. because I think you can't, the more censorious you become, the less people are going to want to watch the content you create Mm. and the more narrow minded you become your, your content, it becomes so, you know, I didn't want to watch whatever the Brie Larson film was just from seeing her talking on stage, lecturing everybody. And I was just like, I don't want to watch it. And I think, you know, with stuff like Little Women, if you're, if you're going, why is no one watching Little Women? Are we, do, are we all anti-women? It's like, no, no, you, you're missing the point here. There's a reason why a film like 1917 is getting watched by everybody. Mm, mm. And that's because it's a great story. Mm. And audience, my dad said to me when I was young, when I first started out as an actor, he said, you, the thing you must remember if you want to be a good actor is your audience are smarter than you are. Mm. And I've taken that in as red. Mm. Now, I think it's the tide will have to change. What, what was that Charlie's Angels or the other one? The yeah. new one? I, I think it did some pretty bad business. And at the end of the day, people that run these corporations must go, yeah, I don't mind losing all my money. They must want to make money yeah. in the end. So I think, it, I think it is beginning to change. 1917 definitely felt for me, I saw a woman with a baby saying, I don't know what to do. Mm. There's a great scene and it's amazing. And there was no point of uh, that I think, why isn't there a man holding the baby mm. and saying, I'm raising this child alone? You know, it was just, it was just a beautiful ex- mm. experience that every normal person in this world goes through. Yeah. They go, what's going on with a child? So I think it's changing. I think the question of content is, is really important in relation to this in terms of what content is being produced, because this isn't just a matter of people behind the scenes having to be on their best behavior politically and and not offending the kind of PC sensibility, because increasingly what's happened is that woke culture threatens to interfere with the content itself. The best example of that is you're an actor, so you will be aware of the fact that acting, as its name suggests, means pretending to be someone else. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that's come up over the past few years, which I think speaks to a lot of these problems, in fact, is the way in which even actors are told there are certain roles they can't play. Tilda Swinton gets told off for playing a non-white character. Scarlett Johansson seems to be in trouble all the time, particularly for offering to play a trans character and then pulling out. That, I think, really grates against the entire 
nature of acting and, and, and the entire purpose of culture more broadly, which is representation and pretense and depicting stories and telling stories. So that's a situation where I think the woke stuff actually pollutes and undermines culture itself. I couldn't agree more. I think this stain your laneism that they yeah. are applying to everybody is ridiculous. I mean, fortunately, I've just done a job for a Spanish guy who did Casa de Papa, you know, a uh, money heist. And I was auditioning for the part of a Mancunian, a gay Mancunian Buddhist. And uh, because he couldn't speak any English, he said, I want that guy to do it. Because he said, and they said, why? You know, because I'm posh boy Lawrence, whatever. And he went, it's in his eyes. I can see it. It's in his eyes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's dreadful, isn't it? It's just when you watch those lovely old movies. Like even mm. what, I mean, my example is always Walter Mitty. Mm. And you see those amazingly strong female characters. And they're strong because of their context. They're not strong by a created context. Yeah. So we're very patronizing to our audiences in a lot of what we do. And I'm, yeah. I'm like, it's just so refreshing when you come across something that isn't. Yeah. I hope the tide is turning because I think money talks, doesn't it? I, this is one of the situations where you hope it does talk and you hope that people will vote with their feet and go and see the films that are not lecturing them and patronizing them, mm. but telling them a story. And 1917, as you say, is a very good example of that. I think one of the things that could start really grating with people and probably has already is this idea that culture has to be used to correct people or re-educate people. And so one of the, you mentioned Charlie's Angels, which is really dreadful film. It's a, it's terrible movie making, but a lot of the justification for bringing that rebooted version out and for pushing it as much as they pushed it was to provide positive female role models to the public as if we need to be told that women are capable as if we need to be told that women are equal to men so uh, the use of culture as a form of lecturing i think is something that's really starting to piss people off it's and also it's not the job of yeah. art and culture you know the, the the job of art and culture is to sometimes to comment i suppose on society you know i mean i don't know if it's true and i'm not well educated but i was told that there's quite a lot of jokes on the roof of the sistine chapel about michelangelo's patron you know the mm. guy who hired him I, I don't know if this is true i think i was told it by my agent who back in the day but you know art's not there to reinforce that whatever culture is telling you we're meant to be countercultural. we're meant to be inspiring new thinking and we're meant to be the first thing that young people come across that they choose to come across do you know what i mean yeah. it's like films and tv is the thing that they choose to come across so if you're just sh shoveling them woke stuff which they already have far too much of at school you want to inspire people i remember leaving goodwill hunting when I went, to, you know, I was young, I'd gone to see my dad filming in, in New York and I left it and I walked down the street and you must have had that feeling when you leave a film and you walk down the street and you feel a million dollars, you know, you feel like I've, I've seen the world in a new way, mm. but they're like, no, no, you can't have thoughts, guys. Thoughts are really, really dangerous yeah. because they mainly lead, lead to ideas and yeah. we know what damaged ideas do. Yeah, absolutely. The only thoughts you can have are the thoughts that they deem to be the correct ones. And why, the ones do, you that think are right. why do you think they're scared of thinking and, and ideas and thoughts? Um, I think we live in a very intellectually shrunken era in which, you know, the, the cult of offence, the cult of offence taking, I think, has grown enormously over the past few years. And one of the things I think is most interesting about the woke era or whatever we want to describe it as is the way in which views that would have, you know, just a few years ago being considered perfectly normal. For example, there are two sexes mm. or you shouldn't judge people by the color of their skin. I mean, these things that good, decent, progressive people would have considered to be, you know, really sensible views to hold. The, the speed and the swiftness with which they can be overturned and suddenly you have to accept that there are a million genders and suddenly you have to accept that you should go through life viewing everything through a racial lens and you should judge people according to their white privileged background or their black oppression or whatever else it might be. I think the great irony in political correctness is that it has this, it's very Soviet-like Mm. has this great churn. It has this great de determination to kind of shunt aside views that were acceptable 
very recently but and more, replace them with this kind of new dogma. It's more, I feel it's a bit more dangerous because, it, well, actually, no, I, I, le- I read the Gulag Archipelago and there was this, this brilliant bit in there where they're taking him off to the camp and no one can quite work out where the camp was and they're all worried about go- going to the wrong one. But the, my fear is that now that it's a religion of one, the, the wokeism mm-hmm. stuff that people like you who really would like to talk about politics and class, I imagine, mm. which is what I hear you talking about quite a lot. You've had to put all of that aside yeah. to address <laughs> an actual massive problem with the way we're talking and communicating with each other. So the, the fact that it, it doesn't have any direction because everyone is their own God and everyone is competing with each other for more and more and more virtue. Mm to the point where it's gone so blind that normal people, I mean, look, it's not going to do me any favours as an actor to to adopt any position about anything because you really want to just be opaque and invisible and quite good at acting. That tends to help. But it's come to a point where even I'm having to say something mm. because, you know, people in their lives, you know, dogmatised and, and run in working for corporations and things, they're having to do, accept stuff like implicit bias training and stuff like that and then if they disagree with it that's you you're fucked mate yeah so i'm self-employed i can just go no i've got to say something yeah and um i'm glad that um that there's a pushback coming yeah because i want my i I, unlike you know greta thunberg who wants to turn my children into like cavemen again (laughs) you know i want my kids to grow up in a world where they can dream and hope and have and and live a great life yeah. without this terrible doomsday cultish madness of wokeism. Absolutely. I think one of the most depressing things about this culture is is the way in which it compels us to say things that we know are not true. Yeah. That's the pinnacle of authoritarianism, in my view. You know, John Stuart Mill writes about this in, in his book On Liberty, in the published in the 1870s. He says that legal censorship is not necessarily the worst form of censorship. It's very bad, and there should be no laws against speech. But yeah. self-censorship and social pressure to conform, which he, you know, he calls it the tyranny of custom, the tyranny of correct opinion, which is not necessarily necessarily written down in law. You won't be thrown in jail if you uh, refuse to adhere to it, but you might lose your job. You might be cast out. You might be thrown out of school. You might be banned from Twitter for life, as some feminists who question transgenderism have been. So that kind of pressure that people genuinely feel to to say things they don't believe, but they know that saying them will keep them safe. I think that's really terrifying. All and the beautiful irony of it all is that the irony is they're doing that in order to truly be compassionate. So, yes. so to censor yourself it is to truly censor yourself is out of often out of compassion. You go, I didn't want to hurt your feelings, yeah. but that's a choice that you make. Whereas the irony is so wonderful that self-censorship now is, is like you say, it's an authoritarian tool. You're, you're exploiting people's goodness yeah. for the sake of serving some much more nasty system. That's right. And sorry, but fuck you Yeah, is my position on it now. Yeah. Your use of the word compassion is really important there because it, the, the motivation for a lot of this is a kind of presumed compassion or a presumed caring about offending people. But very often it has the opposite effect because, as you say, it gives rise to this incredibly intolerant, nasty culture. It's also deeply, deeply patronising to the supposed, the, the minorities who are supposedly easily offended. You know, How whether, dare they speak to minorities? Like, I mean, <laughs> how dare you speak to people like, you know, I had it last night on Question Time with um, Shami Chakrabarti. She started going... You went, who do you fancy as Labour leader? And I went, Keir Starmer. Only because I think Keir Starmer is probably the one that can go up against Boris. Mm. I think they're sort of both a bit dick-swinging and, it'll, and it, you know, that's how it works. You went, not one of the women. Mm. And I sort of said, okay, fine, you know, you're right, all the women. But I think find it so unutterably patronising yeah. for a man to have to stop and go, oh, no, sorry, I'm not including yeah. you women. It's like black chivalry. Yeah. Not black chivalry as in racial sort of yeah. thing, but it's the bad mirror image reflection of, of what chivalry is so compassion is human and it engages us yeah but th- that's not compassion what they're asking for they're they're asking for conformity yeah and unity as long as you agree with them yeah and fuck you it's yeah like, I, just, I just keep feeling it it's yeah like- which is a very very positive feeling to have in this climate but i think it, it, one of the things that really worries me about this culture is well the compulsion to lie but i genuinely think a lot of people feel enormous pressure to say things 
that they don't believe. So, for example, you know, they don't believe that the next Labour leadership candidate should be judged by whether they have a penis or a vagina. They just don't believe that's a good way to judge political leaders. They think the best way to judge a political leader is, are they a capable person? Are they strong-willed? Do they have good policies? Do they have good beliefs? You know, you could grab... A hundred people off the street and the majority of them would think that that's the best way to judge a leader. But a lot of us feel the need, I think, to pay lip service to the dominant ideological culture, which is one of identity politics and wokeness. And therefore you have to say, oh, it'd be great if Labour had a female leader. So when you say fuck you to that, what's the kind of feedback you get? What's the kind of pushback you get? Have you found yourself becoming incredibly unpopular? Do you find film friends of yours say, Lawrence, cool down? What's the kind of response you get? To start with, I suppose mainly, I don't really have a lot of actor friends because A, I'm not great with friends generally. So I'm I'm really good (laughs) mates with my, my family and I've got my best mate, Paul, and that and my girlfriend. And that kind of, that kind of does it for me in terms of people that I need input from. I think it's very odd, isn't it? Because, you know, this, the, the equality of outcome thing, which they kind of want to get into film is like, uh, which talk, talks to what you were saying about, you know, can a straight person play a gay person or a woman play a transgender? It's tricky. People can become confused. I find myself becoming confused just trying to talk about it. But I think actors secretly like someone who says what they think. Right. You know, right. Because, you know, what's the point of an actor? Essentially, the only job of an actor is to take a writer's words and give them life. That's Mm. your only job. Mm. Your job is not to tell the writer whether he's a good writer or not, or tell the director how to shoot it. Your job is to take some words and give it life and meaning. It's a very specific job. And for that, you need great imagination and great ears and great eyes just to listen. So I think being true to yourself is always going to make you a better actor. Yeah. Probably a less popular one, but maybe a better one. What would you say in relation to things like the idea of quotas and the idea of whether it's a a theatre company or or a film production or anything else, uh, uh, deciding that they need a particular number of people, a particular form of representation? They've done it, haven't they? And it's it's backfired extremely badly. And it starts in American universities. They've done it with their positive discrimination. And, you know, it's not served society well. Part of life is suffering, right? Isn't it? You're born into something. So I can empathise with Harry, Prince Harry, that he doesn't want to be born a royal. So, but he's got to deal with his lot. In the same way that I can empathise with someone who's dying to be an actor but can't act at all. Mm. So we're all carrying some sort of burden. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. One of the things I find quite depressing, and you raise this in on Question Time, you raise the question of the idea that racism is widespread, the idea that racism is this huge problem in contemporary British society and through the issue of Harry and Meghan, because I think a lot of the phony compassion of the woke era is about correcting what they consider to be this enormous problem of racism or this enormous problem of sexism, which is another instance where I just think, I, I, I don't see that at all. I think society has progressed enormously, particularly you since are the a 50s. White male. I'm a white male, so I'm a privileged white you male. No, you, you don't have any opinions that were worth listening to at all. <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you about that in a moment. But one of the things I find depressing about that, and I thought your exchange on Question Time really kind of uh, raised it in a lot of people's eyes. They really thought, okay, this is something worth thinking about. Because I think one of the problems with this idea that Britain is this horrible, disgusting racist society or a horrible, disgusting sexist society is actually that um, that backfires enormously because what it says to ethnic minority communities is, you know, people in this country hate you. The history of this country is repugnant. Every institution is institutionally racist. So give up, forget it, you know, back off and and just live in your own tiny little world and never try to make it. So it has this really, I think, debilitating impact. I think it's absolutely right. There was a lady on Question Time last night who was a person of colour which is, at least I got the words in the right order, so I'm not a vile racist. And she said, I'm I'm a black lady and uh, 
yeah, everyone's pulling the race card all the time. I can't bear it. I, th- I think all of the arguments from the woke potential, all of them hinge on the one truth that we live in an oppressive mm. white patriarchal society. And if you don't agree with that, it, it, everything works that way. You can talk about oppression, you can talk about sexism, but if you push back against that at all with truth, which is that whether there is racism, which is undoubtable, undoubtable that there is racism and there are racist acts and we should stand together and confront those racist acts. But if you, if you dismantle the truth and say, you know what, we're not, mm. we, we're getting less racist every single year mm. that, you know, I've, I've said this a few times, but I've got seven nephews and nieces and none of them are white. Mm. Not that I'm like, I've got black friends, mate, in mm. it. But we, we're entering a period anyway where young girls in school, my mates, daughters and stuff like that, they're not growing up thinking men are, boys are more important than them. So it, we're in a sort of twilight zone between going back to being normal. Yeah. And what we want to do is we want to provide our children, especially in my view, with a, with a stable world because that their generation is going to be the one that really is is rocky unless we help them get through it and you know we're also there's it feels like people are kind of gunning for a fight at the moment and you know we don't want to get into a big old war or something which you can feel maybe could happen if if so it's it's trying to calm it down with reason and say look we're not the most racist society in the history of mankind we're the least racist society in the history of mankind and let's celebrate that absolutely right and i think there comes a moment where this obsession you know if you were to go back 50 or 60 years you would very clearly see that racism had a detrimental impact on society. One of the depressing things about seeing racism everywhere or seeing race everywhere is that, you know, I consider myself as someone who comes from the left. So I have kind of leftish, hopefully progressive values. And I think one of the things that's quite depressing is that it actually undercuts this new culture undercuts so much of the progress that we've made over the past 50 or 60 years. So if you cast your minds back to Martin Luther King his whole thing was let's judge people by character, not colour. Mm. And we're increasingly encouraged to do the opposite of that. And so you, you are a white man. Mm. That's all you are. There's nothing else interesting about you. That's in, in the eyes of, of woke people. You're a white man. I'm a white man. Other people are black women or they might be queer men or whatever they are, but everyone is reduced to the biological, the inherited in a way that I find it's like a rehabilitation in PC terms of the kind of thing that we spent so long trying to escape from. But it makes no sense though, does it? Because if you, if you take the intersections all the way down, you end up at the individual anyway. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> I don't understand. A, it's, I, I find it amazing that we, it is so confusing, yeah. but it's, it's crazy. I also think it's extremely patronizing for, and I think, you know, you've spoken about this before and I, and I really understand it. I mean, I have some, what would be called left wing values and I've probably got some quite right wing values, I mm. imagine, but to treat people that are financially not loaded or, or, you know, are living in, in, in difficult lives, like you're somehow better than them. Yeah is not the values of actually what, what, particularly what the Labour Party was invented to do. So stop it. Stop yeah. patronising people yeah. based on their identity. Yeah. It's like, well, you're, you're, you know, you're just poor, so you've got no brain cells. Yeah. It's like, don't do that to people. So it's actually, again, ironically, it's the most authoritarian, most racist, most classist approach to dealing with anybody, masquerading itself. It's the emperor's clothes with mm. no clothes, isn't it? It's, and so, it, which makes it weird that it's going to have to be a few white men mm. and, you know, anybody else who wants to get on board, not white men, you know, but it's, it's taking the, the, the people that are being attacked to stand up and defend the people that need defending because they, that's, they're after them. Yeah. You know, it's, it's bad. I think that's actually a really good description of what we're living through, that this is a kind of racist, classist, uh, authoritarian, uh, ideology masquerading as something progressive masquerading as something compassionate Uh, and i think you're the way in which very often the woke or the pc or whatever they're called the way in which they sneer at ordinary people Mm. is actually the most revealing thing about them so one thing i wanted to ask you about was the issue of brexit because i think the issue of brexit is fascinating in relation to all of this stuff because that's really i guess the moment at which all the stuff that had previously been expressed through euphemism and um, in a very 
guarded, coded way, and and often through the politics of pity. You know, these poor people, they don't really know what's going on in the world. It suddenly burst to the surface and became much more open and and much more uh, this kind of naked aggression almost against the masses for being so stupid. What's your view on 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 the Brexit era, the vote itself and the things that were triggered by that vote? I was extremely antithetical to I didn't care. I sort of instinctively I thought Europe was meant to be a trading block, not a United States of Europe. I didn't vote in the referendum. I was very disappointed that David Cameron didn't stand by and then lead people out of the referendum. I thought that was weak and cowardly. Mm. And then I got extremely upset when I thought that this is not going to happen. Hang on a minute. So you've asked people what they think. We talk about our wonderful Western democracies and you're about to not do what the people have asked you to do. And I think that created huge amounts of tension, which allowed actually the wokey authoritarian crowd to come in and go, don't worry, darling, it's all going to be fine. (laughs) We're going to be really nice to each other. Okay. Do what I say now. (laughs) And then, you know, what I've, I've learned this lesson in life. If someone tells you someone's evil or something's evil, they're usually not. Yeah. If someone forces it down you. So I became very passionately interested in the, in the fact that this needed to be enforced. You know, this was Brexit. This is what people wanted. Yeah. And then, you know, and then you'd listen to James O'Brien sit there and try and mess with people's heads where they're going, which particular law, you know, when someone said, I just want my sovereignty, sovereignty back. And you go, which particular law don't you like? You know, and it's like, okay, James, you've obviously read a lot of books, but you are asking ordinary people whether they want to take back their borders whether they want to take back their, you know, their law. It's a macrocosmic thing. It's not a microcosmic thing. You're asking people in their souls and their spirits Mm. what they want. Mm. And the answer is we want our country to be an individual state that Mm. can make trading unions with whoever. I'm not an economist or any expert. And I think that was great, actually. I think that's a very progressive thing to do. Yeah. And look, I, I do sympathize with people that go, you know, there should be no borders and there's, you know, and everyone should be able to get national health service care. But I'm like, but I'm also a taxpayer. Yeah. So it's like, I can't, we can't have, you can't have your cake and eat it. Mm. You know, we must get behind it. And I'm very motivated now, actually. I'm, I'm sort of very nervous of Boris because I think he's a bit flippy and I'm not sure he was someone who could go to it, but I have a feeling that he might actually grow into this Mm. role because I feel that the country has said to him, here you are, mate. Yeah. There's a majority. Go with it. Can you do something with this? Yeah. I feel excited. And also immediately, the minute it's, the minute the the general election, I thought I can say what I think again. I yeah. mean, I've always have been saying what I think, but I wasn't smashing it in people's faces. But I feel a great weight has come off, mm. you know, and the establishment is a very spooky and dark place. I've been invited into it a few times and seen some odd things <laughs> in my life. And the establishment don't like being accountable because they just don't because mm. they're the establishment. And I think it's great that they're accountable now. Yeah. And I think it's very democratic that they're accountable now. And I think we can get back now to really thinking about, right, who would be a great opposition? Who's going to stand up to these sort of towering, uh, jittery hierarchies that come with Tory governments yeah. and go, let's, let's get some politics going again and, and you know, get and make people's lives better, which is essentially what's, what's the point of politics if it's not about that? Yeah. I think one of the great things about Brexit for people like you and me who are very skeptical of the, of the kind of the backward nature, the unreasoned nature of our current climate is that it, it really was ordinary people reprimanding the establishment and saying, listen, guys, you've outsourced too much of our sovereignty. You've denigrated democracy way too much. You're pursuing crazy PC agendas, which are very often greenlighted by the European Union. And we're going to put a halt to that. And I share your skepticism of Boris, but I thought that the wonderful thing about the massive vote for Boris, particularly when it came from the kind of red wall mm. Labour leavers who've never voted Tory in their lives, is that it was a restatement of that. Even after three and a half years of the politics of fear, the politics of abuse. Um, yeah, because you know why? Because what the nature of conservatism, really, true conservatism, not the stuff that we're told is conservative, is patience, you know? So I take my hat off to every single member of this country who voted Brexit, yeah. who didn't kick off over yeah. those three years. <laughs> and I admire and respect every <laughs> single one of them who bothered to turn out and vote. Yeah. And, you know, for, for entire constituencies to go from like, you know, 70, 80 years, never yeah. voted Tory. And then last night it was sat with Sharmi Prabhati and she was, um, 
she was just navel gazing yeah. back in. And you're like, dude, yeah, come on. Yeah. You're the Labour Party. If we don't have the Labour Party, we're screwed. Yeah. And the guy in the audience, this lovely Scouser dude, he went, you're not listening. Yeah. And it was like, that's the worst Scouse accent ever. <laughs> you're not listening. No, that's even worse. Um, <laughs> she, he, he said, you've been told, we've told you, now do it. Mm. And I thought it was great. I and mean, especially Liverpudlians, you know, they just don't take any shit yeah. from anybody. Yeah, no, they don't. It's like, um, I think your point on patience is really important, actually. I got a bit of stick because I was on BBC TV and I said we should riot over the failure to deliver, yeah. deliver Brexit. I got into a huge amount of trouble. There you go. But I think that we the, were close to it though. We it, were close we, to we, it. We were pretty close to, do, to it. Cause there comes a, there come, you know, push comes to shove sometimes. But I think the patient, you know, C.L.R. James, a kind of great Trinidadian Marxist, who's mm. one of my heroes, wrote a great book called The Black Jacobins about the slave revolt in Haiti. Mm. He once said that when people look back at the history of the 20th century in particular, they won't marvel at the kind of hysteria or madness of ordinary people, which is often what was talked about, but at their patience, their patience at being mistreated, their patience at waiting for change, their patience at voting for change and then hoping it will actually happen. And I think that's really true of Brexit. You know, you have this, the largest block of voters in British history ever, ever <laughs> saying, let's radically change the constitutional future of the country. And then just biding their time and waiting as democracy sometimes demands, for it to happen. I thought that was incredibly inspiring. So love them. And it also it makes people proud to be, yeah. you know, because I think it's okay. I'm really proud to be English and British and stuff like that. I really like it. Yeah. I'm, I'm really pleased with the fact that we're a bit eccentric about certain things and we're slightly different from the French and we're slightly different from... I love that. I think it adds to society. It doesn't diminish from it. So to see how nobly... That was handed. Yeah. And also, I mean, I hate to say it, unpopular opinion of the forever, but I kind of like Farage up until he copped it. But I bet you he's, he's a smart man. You know, I, I was like, why are you now just jumping out of the Brexit thing? But then I thought he's actually going, give the man a golden plate. Give him a plate so he can actually go and be Boris Johnson. Because at the end of the day, Boris, I'm a bit like, oh, hang on a minute, mate. Are you going to change your opinion, you know, depending on how many bottles of Chablis you've had? Yeah. Or whether you've had an argument with the missus last night. But I think Boris, my dad actually said this. He said, I think Boris really wants to be prime minister. Mm. And so you're like, okay, well then go for it, buddy. Yeah. Which is quite an English, it's quite a, you know, it's, there's a, there's a sort of peasants revolt thing. To yeah. It. I know that the, yeah. the, the left would go, oh, he's in Bullingdon Club. You know, which is fine. Yes, of course. But he's got this kind of, da-da, yeah. Richard the Lionheart <laughs> thing. And, you know, go for it, chub chubby Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Peasants' revolt is actually not a bad way of describing it. And I think that one of the most striking things that's happened in Britain for decades is the fact that the most working class people you can think of voted for the most Bullingdon style candidate are, in yeah. recent times. And, and, and it's so clear why they did that. There's no mystery to it whatsoever. They did it because he spoke to them more than the woke left did. Yeah. And when you have a situation where someone who is so alien to their everyday lives and to their experiences, they've had none of the experiences he has had. They've had no, none of the wealth that he has. They've had nothing like that, but he connected with, with them more than all these kind of Corbynista tossers who were knocking on their doors yeah. and saying, we'll save you. We'll look after you. I just thought that was such a, a an important political moment in British history. In I fact. think it'll be the, the political yeah. moment, certainly of the last post-war. Yeah. I think it's, it's amazing. I, I, it's, I love, I love us for it. Yes. I, I, that's I, how I feel. I completely I, and agree. And I feel optimistic. Yeah. And ultimately, what do you want to take into your life? You want to take into a sense that human beings can do wonderful and amazing things under very high duress circumstances. What books do you read your children when they're young? You read them st tales of adversity ending with either tragedy or happiness. You know, you don't raise children on, he went, he went to work, he worked for 50 years and then he died at the end of the story. <laughs> you read them Huckleberry Finn. That's yeah. what you do, which is what I do to my kids, yeah. much to the chagrin of most other people. <laughs> With the human animal needs hope and mm. needs optimism mm. and needs to believe. And the human animal also, in order to stop killing other human animals, needs to know that the processes that operate around them, like politics and stuff like that, are, re are reflecting what we need. So it's, it's perfect for us. Yeah. 
I've been thinking along very similar lines myself, particularly about the one of the key battles of our time actually being pessimism versus optimism. Because mm. if you if you listen to the Remainers or if you listen to the woke crew who are convinced that everyone's racist and and life is incredibly dangerous and we live in a patriarchal, horrible society. It's just in, infused with this anti-humanism and this pessimism and this sense that you're not safe and ordinary people are untrustworthy. And, and, but if you, if you go to the other side, you know, the, the Brexit voting side, the kind of not very PC side, there is more of a sense of optimism. There's a sense of optimism that society can cope Humor. with controversial opinions. Ordinary people are pretty decent. Most people don't judge others by their race or their sex, but you know, by are they good individuals? So I think that's really important. But one, one thing that wanted to, I wanted to touch on in relation to that with you in particular and, and in relation to your question time performance, which is now becoming quite a famous question time performance. I know, but I wonder how many followers I'll have by the end of the day. People telling me I'm a fascist. Yeah, this is the important thing, which is, uh, and I think it's really worth reminding ourselves and everyone else of this fact, which is the chasm-sized divide between woke opinion and public opinion. Mm. And it's really worth reminding ourselves of that. So, for example, post your question time appearance, you get a huge amount of flack from the Twitterati, media elite, leftists, wokists, whatever we want to call them, Mm. who respond in in a completely hysterical way to the things that you said. But then at the same time, we know that there are huge numbers of ordinary people or however we want to refer to them who are thinking, I'm glad someone said that. That's what I'm thinking. And I think that's so important to bear in mind. And, you know, Jonathan Swift made this point, which is that too often the the opinions of a kind of London coffee house are mistaken for the opinions of the nation. Mm. And most of the time, they are actually very different things. I think that's exactly right. And that cognitive dissonance between yeah. Twitter and, and the world is, is going to be one of the massive problems that, that our children deal with. And, and we, to some extent, deal with as we become, you know, I think Elon Musk made quite a good point about the phone when Joe Rogan said to him, um, well, you know, when are we, when's the phone going to be, when are we going to be androids or cyborgs or whatever? And Elon Musk said, you already are. <laughs> he said, when was the last time you were without your phone? You're already a cyborg. So, yeah, I think optimism is, you know, the Bible is about it, good versus evil, isn't it? Yeah. Right? And and I think optimism is probably good and pessimism is probably evil. I think, you know, if you're given the... And that brilliant film, Event Horizon, you mm. remember how brilliantly it was expressed and actually um, Mads, that one of the journos from the Telegraph yesterday was like, watch Team America again. It's exactly the film for the moment. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think more, more and more often as a dad nowadays, and I want my kids to have things to hold on to that they believe in. And I want them to believe that I love them and that I'm, my decisions I make for them are the decisions that are best for them. And that doesn't mean that they're not going to suffer, but it, there is hope and there's optimism. Yeah. And we find that together. Yeah. And I think it is kind of a good versus evil, but some people want to tear the whole fucking thing down yeah. and they just do. And I know this from personal experience in, le- in a legal situation I've had. This is the whole reason the law exists is to slow down the people that want to tear the world apart and make them accountable for what they're going to say. Yeah. And that's what this referendum was. And it was the six elections that, that where the great British public said, we want out guys. Yeah. yeah. Also, you can always tell a bit of an arsehole is when they try and tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. No one fucking knows what's yeah. going to happen tomorrow. It's just part of the world, isn't yeah. it? So I'm, I'm massively inspired and I'm massively optimistic. And I'm really sorry that all of the now rejoiners are fucked off about it. <laughs> but then this is coming from someone who didn't mind either way. But yeah. now that I've been led by my peers and people I respect in, in down the direction of where it is, I respect what they've said. You yeah. want out? We want out. I respect and I join you and I'm behind you, which is why the Lib Dems can go fuck themselves. Yeah. And why Joe Swinson <laughs> loses her seat. Because she's like, no, I'm the opposition. <laughs> it's like, you don't get it, do you? <laughs> You're missing the point. We don't need opposition for this. This has been democratically mandated yeah. by half of the country. Yeah. What you need to do is get behind this. Yeah. That's your job. Yeah. That's what you're paid for. And why you get an office. Joe Swinson losing her seat. I mean, that is, that's the wisdom of the crowd summed yeah. up. <laughs> you know, the, Top people just thinking we're not having this. No, I completely share that optimism. And I think, you know, the era of the Brexit revolt is such an important one. It pushes back against so many, so much of the crap that people like you and me would be concerned about. Mm. 
it, it always makes me think uh, think of a line from 1984. You know, if there is hope, it lies with the proles. And yeah. and his point was that you know very often the craziest, most hysterical, and most authoritarian ideas don't actually come from the masses, which is is the prejudicial view. You know, they read the sun and they want to lock everyone up. It's the liberals. It's- it, it comes from the kind of liberal elite, overly educated, got too many PhDs, um, live in one particular place and never really venture around very much. Got lots of walls often- around them. Yeah. Uh, he says it in Road to Wigan Pier, which so I've started to going through the list of books that you're meant to read. On this little segue, I gave my dad a book today which I wanted to say, and, and he said, I can't read that. I was like, I haven't got that many books left in me. I'm 80. And I just thought, fuck, that's an amazing thing to say. It's yeah. like, I've got to pick my books carefully. Yeah, yeah. But he says it, doesn't he? He said, it's not that the liberal elite love and want to look after the poor. They hate the yeah. fucking rich. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's, it's a good point. Absolutely. And it's such an amazing book, Road to Wigan Pier. But also it. the other thing that Orwell tapped on incredibly well is the loathing of the English intellectual classes for England itself. And he said they yeah. always felt a stronger connection with what they considered to be the more philosophical, cosmopolitan Western Europeans and yeah. France and Italy, which is where they were focused. And, and they looked upon England as this kind of parochial, backward nation full of stupid people. All of that has come bursting back yeah. into public life over the past but few years. But what's so lovely is all of those parochial, stupid people have said, it's all right, chum. <laughs> Don't worry about it. We're, we're back. Yeah. You go and write some poetry. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and slag us off again. Yeah. But we just need to Fine. be staying on this track. Yeah. We're used to it. Yeah. Which is when it comes yeah. back to what really what needs to be dealt with, which is the class system in this country yeah. and all of the things that actually matter, like housing and food and transport and all the things that actually matter. Yeah. Rather than whether I want to join your fucking stupid religion, you yes. can't. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Religion, the woke religion. Yeah, There's no I don't better want to be description. Part of it, guys. You're listening to the Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. Right. Okay. So let's talk about, there's a couple of things I want, a couple more things I want to ask you about. So in relation to class issues, because my pet theory is that identity politics is really, uh, it's like the revenge of the middle classes against the masses because what, what identity politics allows, you know, often very comfortably off people, what it allows them to do is to, is to pose as oppressed, you know, so you have someone like Afua Hirsch, who's a black woman who writes for the guardian what i think is striking about afua hirsch in particular is if you read her book on british identities it's it's where she writes a lot about her personal life she had an incredibly uh, nice upbringing private school brought up in wimbledon big house straight so was into- i I oh, right, the right. So you should do it too. <laughs> Unfortunately, you're a white man, so oh, that kind of cancels you out. But it's like, um, what I think identity politics does is it allows people, Andrew Doyle, the comedian who also writes a, writes brilliantly for Spite, mm. he refers to someone like Afu Hirsch as the oppressed millionaire. So you yeah. have these people who pose as oppressed and it allows them to lecture ordinary people. So you're, you know, ordinary people are stupid and backward and racist and sexist, and therefore we need to re-educate them. So it completely, it's like this inversion of privilege. Mm. So they become the oppressed underdog and everyone else becomes their oppressor. And it's completely mythical. But the reason I'm saying all this is because I want to ask you about one thing in particular, which is the idea of white privilege, Mm. which is one of my least favorite ideas, the notion that your skin color somehow confers privilege on you automatically and even worse than that the negation of your opinion on the basis of your skin color and your genitalia i mean that's fundamentally what is being said in crazy i'm very blessed in life that i went to drama school with a guy called paul he was the first time he'd really been out of home which was down south coast and he came to london and yeah he went a bit mad at drama school i'm not gonna lie fucking amazing actor he became a prison officer because he couldn't cope with um, drama school. He thought we were all wankers. And he said, I'm going to go and get a real job. So he became a prison officer. And he said, it's a real acting job, actually, out of all the jobs. And he has, he, he, there's this sort of, you know, as you get with everything, there's this sort of civic duty thing going on. Anyway, he was coshed over the head by a prisoner in an understaffed 
bit of Belmarsh, I think. I can't remember if it was Belmarsh or one of the other ones. And he had a brain hemorrhage. And he has very little short-term memory nowadays mm. and not very much money. And he's white and there's nothing privileged about his life. And every single time we talk about anything, which we do on it all the time, he's never mentioned it to me. He's never, mm. ever, ever complained about anything that he's been through in his life. Mm. Never. We talk politics. He's an ardent socialist. We talk and we just have the most amazing times and we combine. So you can take your white male privilege and shove it, actually. And, and you can shove it for all of the other white people as well that yeah. are working hard and trying to get on with it. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with our race. Yeah. I mean, our colour, whatever yeah. it is. You yeah. Know, is shove it. Yeah. And I, I didn't, I've never thought about it. It, you know, these sort of posh Wimbledon Easters with sort of slightly exotic names going, you know, I'm, I know, well, I'm, I'm oppressed too. I've no, I didn't think it was that insidious, but yeah. now I do. I'm now it, actually angry. I haven't yeah. been angry for a while. I'm now like, fuck you guys. Yeah. You know, and he, the, it, <laughs> this man is, he couldn't have less privilege. Yeah. And what you want to do is you want to lob on his head after a long day. Yeah. You, it's your privilege, isn't yeah. it? I share your anger in relation to this because you have this perverse situation where you have these, you know, often people who come from very privileged backgrounds and who have columns in The Guardian or, or regular stints on the BBC or whatever else it might be, who go on and on about white, white male privilege. And I, I sometimes have this vision that they probably are sitting there writing their columns while a Polish man is fixing their toilet yeah. or an Irish man is, is laying their, their crazy paving or whatever people have Definitely. these days. And you just think it's the complete ignorance of anything to do with class, mm. anything to do with wealth, which I think are the defining influences on, totally. on society uh, and the replacement. I will respond. I will respond to someone who says, you don't know because you're a posh kid. You've never been through it. And I would go, that's fair yeah. enough. I, that I can respond to you. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, that's right. And I think it's one of those situations where I think the white privilege idea is it sums up the whole woke problem because it is that blanket racial approach. So it takes no consideration of class background. It takes no consideration of experience. It takes no consideration more importantly than those two things of political belief. Mm. So if someone were to say to me or you, you're a white man, that's, that's it. Mm. The, the thing I find most denigrating about that, and this is not me playing the victim card, it's just me stating a fact. The thing I find most denigrating about that is it has no consideration whatsoever for what I, as an autonomous individual, think if and how I arrived at that view. Why are you not, but you, you know, the thing is, if you start speaking your truth, Brendan, and you started saying, you know, I come from, I think I know a little bit because I listen to you, you guys all the time, but you know, you, you've got lots of brothers and sisters and stuff like yeah. that. You don't come from a load of cash in this world. You know, if you start talking your truth a bit more. <laughs> Playing that card. I, well, as part <laughs> of me thinks you've kind of got to, against the yeah. ones that don't understand you, which is what I do nowadays. I go, you're a racist. Because, like, if you want to have to chat, you're a racist. Yeah. Like, I, I think you've got to play the card back against them. But, yeah, they take away your autonomy, but they don't give a shit about your autonomy. You're yeah. not. You're, you're just a white bloke. Yeah. Everything you say means nothing. Yeah. And, you know, okay, sorry, guys, but that's not going to last. But one of the things that I think worked very well with you in relation to question time, which <laughs> one of the controversial aspects is that you had this confrontation or this discussion with an audience member who was saying that the treatment of Harry and Meghan was obviously racist. And when you questioned that, you were denounced as a white man. Yeah. That's why you think this. And you push back saying, well, that's the racist thing. Because what I thought, and I thought what was very striking about that exchange, and it's not surprising that it's become a bit of a talking point and a focal point and people are debating it, is because... You didn't mention anything about people's skin colour. You didn't judge anyone on the basis of where they come from. But the person who was pushing back against you did. Now, I don't want to demonise that person. People do mm. whatever they want to do. And they say whatever they want to say. But the woke culture generally, the great irony within it, and I think you've had this experience, is that it, it, they push back against the masses for being racist while it is actually them who are judging people constantly it's the beautiful irony of it isn't it which is why it's symphonic and like it's tonally <laughs> scale it's like it, it's the magic of the beautiful. stars in it i kind of think it is beautiful because yeah. i want to find something in it that i think is beautiful 
because I want to go, there must be a reason why this exists. And it can't just be a bunch of really narcissistic, selfish people who think they're wonderfully intelligent. And actually, maybe it is. It, there's something sonically beautiful about it. I mean, God knows. <laughs> but it's true. She was being racist, technically, because I genuinely don't care. And I know that they've definitely been hounding the racist thing about because it sells newspapers. It's yeah. going to. There's going to be a few dodgy comments in the papers. But overwhelmingly, the British public's antipathy towards Meghan is about that they feel that they've opened their arms up to her and gone, welcome. And she's turned around and gone, you're all racist. Yeah. And that's why the British public, who are extremely discerning people, as we've just spent a lot of time talking about, that's why they've turned their back on her. Because she, they feel like, oh, you can, we love you, we'll give you everything. But you see the one in charge, the 93-year-old, who's had yeah. fuck all of her own way <laughs> for the last 93 years, that's what we look up to. Yeah. It's really funny. Earn it, babe. Yeah. It's funny you should say that, because I, I am a, like, hardcore Republican. I am, I'm not a fan of the monarchy at all, but I found myself over the past week or so during the whole Harry and Meghan scandal, really feeling this profound sympathy for the queen Mm. because you think, I think one of the queen's problems is she comes from another world, right? It's another planet almost, a world in which you kind of negated the self. She's like a bird taken out of a nest. You've right? never met another bird. And yeah. she's been hand reared. And That's it's right. Like, and by the way, you're just, you've got, it's like, yeah, it's totally, her life must be totally, but she's extremely discerning. It's, the difference between her and, and Megan, right? If we take those two extremes. So the queen is entirely about a, a sense of duty, a mm. sense of responsibility, a sense of uh, uh, purpose, not about the self at all. And she hides herself and her opinions all the time. I'm sure she's got a million opinions, some of them probably very controversial. We hear rumours that she's pro-Brexit. Who knows? Mm. We, we don't know. But we know far too much about Megan because there's that constant advertisement of your emotions and your feelings, which defines the kind of that new generation. So I think that clash between the culture that the Queen represents and the culture that that Meghan represents is really important. And uh, there was a very interesting poll came out of public opinion and public opinion was pretty much, you know, don't mistreat the Queen, take away the HRHs from Harry and Meghan because they pissed about a bit. And, And I thought there was something very positive in that because it was actually people saying, listen, the nation and its institutions and its history matter. And you can't just come in and say, screw all that, I'm going to do something different. That's a brilliantly described version of it. It really is. Because, you know, also, you know, the, the post boxes have got E2R on them and, you know, whatever things have the Queen's stuff on it. And I yeah. think, you know, we do do these things. I often wonder, I ask myself in like crazy uh, apocalyptic world, whether the Queen, if there was something really bad happened, whether the Queen said, came on TV and went, my people, I ask you to do this, and whether we'd all just do it <laughs> ahead, of, ahead of the Prime Minister. I think she's massively misjudged us lot. And I mean, if you want my sort of private, shitty opinion, which is none of my business, because I do feel compassion for them, having had a sh- difficult relationship myself in my life. I think that, you know, when you've got a mate who gets married, and mm. he gets married and you still hang out and have a great time. And then, you know, when you get the mate get married and he starts going around yeah. barefoot and he's looking really stressed and he does a lot of yoga... <laughs> I, I, you know, and my mum says this quite a lot. She goes, um, sign of a good relationship, Lars, is when two people bring out the best in each other. <laughs> and I'm just not convinced no. at the moment that it's, that it's saying, and I think people probably know, but also, you know, no relationship perfect. So you, you've, and they've got a new baby and you feel sorry for them and all that, but she's massively, or he has massively misjudged. Yeah. The, the yeah. thing, because it's going back to what you're saying about the patience of the people when it comes, comes to the referendum and getting yeah. democracy done. Yeah. And, you know, I think the people are just sitting there going, okay, we support you. If it's shitty and difficult, it's fine, but not, we're going to brand Sussex Royal. We're going to fuck off to America and yeah. start up a foundation. We're going to make a shitload of money out of it. And we're going to dine out on the fact that we're royals. And by the way, fuck you lot. Yeah. It's like, and I'm like, oh, well, can we have the cottage back? Yeah. Please? Yeah. And, and, the, <laughs> and the 20 million pound wedding where people were just oh. like, welcome. And then you've got some numpty on question time going, you're racist. It's yeah. like, yeah, because the British people would really go, you know, we, yeah, we were not welcoming you in. I couldn't have seen a warmer welcome, actually. No, I completely agree. I mean, the, the welcome that Meghan Markle got, people have short memories, I think, because she was welcomed hugely. The wedding was massively popular. Mm. People warmed to her very much. She got loads of positive coverage. The, it only went sour when she started to become this kind of lecturing, woke, Wokest. hypocritical idiot who yeah. was taking a private jet to Elton John's a house in the south of France while lecturing the rest of us from the pulpit of Vogue magazine about our carbon footprints. I know, the but she is- doesn't want to see you when she's sat on the balcony at Elton's place. 
she doesn't want to see all the people that got an easy jet to the same report <laughs> lying on the beach. That beach needs to yeah. be clear Get rid of so them. that when she can walk down, there are no proles <laughs> getting suntanned who like a can of beer at lunch. You know, there are no, it's there so she can think about how the world could be a better place. But, you know, that's actually, that's that's a really important point because the, the great irony of all of this is that the progressives and the woke lobby will talk about Meghan in particular as this kind of the new royal, the more open royal. But actually she comes off as even more snobbish yeah, yeah. than the old style royals because the Queen has spent decades and decades rubbing shoulders with all, all sorts of people. She opens factories, she visits schools, she visits hospitals. She does, you know, she really does do a bit of graft. And I'm sure she meets people she'd rather not meet. And she does it all the time. She met me and she didn't rather meet me. She's great. <laughs> Whereas Harry and Meghan, what they're effectively saying is we're sick of doing all those things. We don't want to cut ribbons. We don't want to open some whatever it is. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to become like a super version of the Obamas. And we're going to just mix with, you know, the, the wealthy and make loads and loads of money and become a corporation. It's very progressive though. To, it's very progressive to take your privilege and be aware of it, <laughs> which is what they've done. They, they're very aware of their privilege. So, yeah. you know, dine out on it for all yeah, I care. They are going to dine out on it. It's going to be interesting. I really hope that they, I hope that they don't have a, a difficult time together. And I think that, it, you know, I for one know that I would never, uh, I don't, I could never be with a woke woman no. or a feminist <laughs> ever. <laughs> Everyone take note. So there's one more thing I want to ask you about, which is an issue close to my heart and to many listeners hearts as well, I expect, which is the issue of freedom of speech freedom of thought, the right to express oneself. Because I think one of the one of the most destructive aspects of woke culture, both on cultural life and public life, is this instinct to censoriousness and this, uh, you can't say that, uh, and the idea that all sorts of, of views are potentially offensive. So how, how would you make the case how far would you go in making the case for freedom of speech? And then how would you make that case? How would you describe it as something important, as a value really worth clinging onto? I would say that I am a, um, I'm somewhere between stopping freedom of speech at an incitement to violence or just not even having that. Right. So it's like, I, I think if you trust humanity and you trust people, bad ideas get bought down by good ideas. That's yeah. what happens. Yeah. So, um, I love freedom of speech. I like the, and also like I've been, I'm being assaulted and attacked and smashed on Twitter today and all of this stuff. And I kind of love it. Yeah. Bring it on. Cause it's like you, you're totally 100% welcome to say whatever you want to me. And it's my responsibility to have a thick enough skin to go. I still stand by what I said. And if great, if someone comes at me with a really good idea and goes, have you thought about this, Lars? But so far, all people have said is, have you read the book about called why I won't speak to white people about racism anymore? And I'm like, no, I'd rather, no. Eat, I'd rather eat a light bulb. <laughs> so I sort of kind of think, no, incitement to violence, shouting fire in a theater. I don't know, but I mean, you must all beautiful societies have fallen on freedom of speech. Yeah. And you know, I have this odd relationship with religion and I think that, you know, there's a freedom of speech story in the, in the, in the crucifixion. He went, I'm God. I'm Jesus. I'm actually, I'm the son of God. And they're like, mate, you can't say that. You literally can't say that. And he's like, no, I am. And they're like, we're going to have to kill you. And he's like, yeah, just say you're not. And he's like, no, I am. Yeah. And I think that's a kind of a freedom yeah. of speech story in itself. And I think some of these Bible stories are very much like tens and 20,000 years old told stories and that's one one it's like it's almost maybe the most important story yeah which is freedom of speech yeah and so i i'm i'm a, yeah i'm an absolutist that's a, actually surprised a very, that's it <laughs> i love free speech absolutists i am one myself i i think that's a very good example i think the crucifixion is a good example of freedom of speech that i'd not thought about before my my favorite biblical example of the importance of freedom of speech is saint thomas and and the right to doubt Mm. and the right to ask for evidence, uh, which I thought, you know, the story of St. Thomas being the only apostle who said, nah, he didn't rise from the dead. That's <laughs> complete nonsense. Show me the proof. Mm. Um, I want to talk about this. So I've always admired Doubting Thomas and, and Caravaggio's painting of Doubting Thomas, I think is one of the great symbols of the importance of 
asking questions and mm. and and inquiry. So, which brings me on. Speaking of Caravaggio, out of the blue, brings me on to the final point, which follows on from freedom of speech, which is is the age of reason. Now, you you sing, you actually sing about the age of reason. Yeah. How do you think the age of reason is is under threat, and what is important to in your view about defending those enlightened values? I think uh, the age of reason comes under attack in very specific and profound ways. And whenever it comes under attack and it's, you know, new ideologies come into place, then hundreds of millions of people die. So therefore, there are certain things that we, we need to be on board with, which are, does your argument make sense? Mm. Are you speaking factual truth? Facts even. So I think the age of reason is, you either have the age of reason or you have destruction and death. That's what I think. I think, you know, I often sit there and ask myself, how did the whole like Nazi thing happen? And then I go, people would have changed the way that they thought. They would have gone away from reason and, and away from enlightenment values, and they would have gone towards new ideologies. And those new ideologies, however attractive, would have again become about a freedom of speech thing. It's like, mate, we're not really on board with this, but it would lead to massacre and murder. So I think those values are the most important values to protect in the world. And they're the values I raise my children with. Mm. And so, you know, that's how it's going to be. I think that's a very good point. And, you know, the Nazis burned books and any, uh, yeah. as, as someone said, burning books is usually a precursor to burning people, but that kind of abandonment of freedom, the abandonment of the right people to speak and publish and argue as they see fit is always a really, really bad sign of what's to come. But we've, I genuinely feel on an optimistic level, I feel that yet again, people have stood up yeah. and they've said, no, thank you. Yeah. Nicely six times <laughs> and now people are going no thank you and I, i'm so grateful for it because it's it's crosses class divides it's not the right to express yourself it doesn't matter whether you're prince harry or you know some patronized poor person who's got nothing and he's collecting benefits and can't fucking walk to the shops mm. it doesn't matter you have exactly the same opinion and again it's a biblical value i hate to say it but that we are all born in the image of God, you know, and we're all sinners as well, which I, I like. I love all these stories because yeah. I really connect with them. Yeah. Because it's like, there you go. You're all the same, man. You're all made in my image. I love it. Lawrence Fox, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. I'm at the nail salon. I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.